Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Along with the spread of the COVID-19 virus, domestic abuse is on the rise globally. Today, we'll be talking about intimate partner abuse and using the law to provide economic empowerment to survivors. Hello, and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today, we're joined remotely by Amy Barish, the executive director of the pro bono legal organization, Her Justice. Amy, welcome to Talks on Law. My pleasure. Maybe before we jump into today's conversation, I'd love to share with our viewers a little bit about what Her Justice is and what you do there. Well, that's my favorite thing to talk about. So Her Justice is a not-for-profit. We're located in New York City. We've been around for about 27, 28 years, and we exist to stand in partnership with women living in poverty in New York. And we do that by training and mentoring volunteer lawyers from across the city to address some of the civil legal needs that the women living in poverty have, as well as to address systemic barriers they may face. When most people think of, of intimate partner violence or domestic abuse, we're, we're thinking about physical abuse. What's the connection to the economic side, the financial side? You're right. We usually think a bit about think of it as physical abuse. And, you know, oftentimes there is physical abuse. But in the field, what we often say is that intimate partner violence is really about power and control. And so if you think about the physical harm, the physical abuse as really a tool of power, it helps better understand the totality of what partner violence looks like. So, for example, Many years ago, I had a client whose husband was a lieutenant in the police department. So he was a pretty senior place officer in the police department. And he had always been verbally abusive to her, was not kind to her, if you will. And then one time when he was berating her about something, he held his service weapon to her head, loaded, and threatened to kill her if she did X, Y, or Z. He did not pull the trigger. Fortunately, he did not harm her. But she lived in deadly fear of this person for the rest of her time with him. And so telling that story sort of helps explain that you can have one incident, and in this case, she wasn't even physically harmed, but with a threat that dramatic, it really continues to keep that control over the household. And with the added fact that he's a police officer, she's really feeling like she had better do what he says she needs to do or she's gonna be in big trouble. So the physical violence is what is most apparent and visible to the rest of the world, but a lot of our clients will tell us that it's actually the emotional harm and the psychological harm that hurts them the most. The reason the economic part is really essential is both because some partner violence can be economic abuse. So again, that's a kind of abuse that doesn't result in physical harm, but is definitely about power and control. And very often for victims of partner violence of any kind, what they really need most to get to safety is economic health. And that's something we try to give them. The way you you pointed out that abuse can be about power and or that it is about power and control, what's more uh, more controlling than our emotions and our finances? Absolutely. And we uh, there have been studies done that show that something like ninety eight percent of all victims of partner violence experience financial abuse as part of that relationship and part of that violence and control. 
And you know that can look like, for example, interfering with somebody's ability to work. So you may have a situation in which your partner is supposed to be driving you to work or your partner is supposed to be taking care of the kids when you go to work and suddenly not doing that means you and you don't have a backup plan means you can't go to work you may lose your job sometimes people have their money literally stolen from them by their partner we found during covid for example that some of that magical federal covid relief money that came to people was actually stolen by our clients partners because it would come to the home and so they had access to it so that relief did not provide any relief to our clients you know, if you are married to somebody, the law recognizes you in some ways as a single entity. And so you might have a joint bank account. Your spouse might be able to sign for, um, you know, to buy a car in your name, things like that. There's so many ways in which your life is financially tied up with this person who's being abusive. And they can really take advantage of that if they choose to. I think while we're talking about financial abuse, why don't we talk a bit about credit as well? How are you seeing that with some of your clients? In terms of credit, I mean, people often are trying to develop credit for themselves. If we have undocumented clients, they have no credit rating and they need to develop a credit rating. And so one way we might encourage them to do that is to get a, you know, a gap credit card, for example, or I guess they're not credit cards, but a gap card. And a way to develop a good credit rating is to take a card make a purchase and then pay off that purchase. It's sort of counterintuitive, but if you have not yet engaged in our formal economy, you have no credit rating. And if you have no credit rating, you can't do the next things you might need to do to build up your economic viability. Oh, interesting. So it may be harder to leave your partner if you have no credit history. Uh, where would you go? Would you be even be able to rent an apartment? Exactly. So for, you know, so an undocumented person needs to develop their own credit history. And so they're in this funny bind of needing to get a card, make payments and pay them back to show that they have good credit. Even if the person isn't undocumented, let's just say that you are living in a partnership, either married or not married with somebody. It's very common to purchase things together or to use the same card or to have access to one another's accounts. And we see a lot of times that our clients, that debt is being accrued in a relationship by our client's partner. So for example, somebody's married and they have joint accounts or they, you know, the husband says, let me use your credit card because I want to buy a car. And he buys the car on the credit card. He doesn't make any of the payments. There is debt accruing on this car. Our client doesn't even know where the car is, has never seen the car. It's the husband who owns the car she is now becoming liable, responsible for the debt that she knows nothing about. And so if that sort of power dynamic is going on in the relationship, she's really going to be in trouble. And so what we do for clients like that is we actually help them, if they want to be separating from their partner, we help them start a divorce proceeding. Because when we think about divorce, we think about it as dividing assets, but it also divides debts. But by filing for divorce, you're actually stopping the clock and saying to the court, this is the time when I want to no longer be responsible for these debts that shouldn't belong to me. So that's a place, for example, where, you know, not only the person is at risk of losing their credit rating, but they're also at risk of ending up holding this debt bag that doesn't belong to them. So you mentioned divorce proceedings. What other legal tools do you have for victims of this type of financial abuse? Yeah, so it's a great question. I mean, we 
you know, when I think about how we address economic equity for our clients, which is, which is really central to our work, there are some legal things we do that literally get them money. So very directly address economic equity and justice. And then there are other things we do that make them more able to access finances on their own. So in that first category of things we might do that really get folks some money that they need, the divorce is one. It's it's both getting them some resources, but also preventing harm coming to them. So like I said, them being left holding this debt bag that doesn't belong to them. Another place where we look for resources for our clients is with child support and spousal support. And spousal support is called maintenance in some other places, alimony. But the child support is really, really essential. For a lot of poor women, child support can represent 40% of their income. And if you're a victim of partner violence, there's a pretty good chance your partner is not paying child support because that's going to be part of the power and control. Or you get a child support award, they go to court and agree they're going to pay, and then they don't pay, and then you have to bring them back to court to try to enforce that award. So somebody, again, thinking about partner violence is about power and control, folks like that often use the court system, unfortunately, as kind of an extension of their way of controlling somebody. So it's really much more effective in New York, at least most 95 to 98% of child support cases go forward without a lawyer. And we've been doing a lot of research on this because although these cases were designed to be feasible for people to go forward alone, we find that it's really not, they, they come up short if they don't have an attorney by their side. And we take cases where we think there are resources there that are being hidden or underdisclosed. And again, when you have somebody who's a controlling person, they're more likely to be underdisclosing or hiding assets. I mean, it's amazing, you know, we are representing people living in poverty, so they're not not disclosing the Ferrari, right? Except sometimes they're not disclosing the Ferrari. <laughs> I mean, we had a case where a client's husband or partner was actually dealing in international cars. He had a business on the side and he was simply not disclosing any of that information. What he was presenting to the court was a very, very low income. And one of the benefits of our pro bono model, where we bring in the resources of the private sector, attorneys, and even sometimes forensic accountants to really dig in and investigate, because a client might say to us, I don't know what he's doing, but I know he drives a fancy car, or I know that he's taking trips and there's money somewhere, but she doesn't know where it's coming from. We can have professional people investigate that, issue a report to court, and then the child support award actually becomes a fair child support award, and honestly what that individual can pay to support their kids. So our clients are low income, but sometimes their husbands not so much. Let's go back to the conversation on debt. I mean, when you're talking about marital assets, there can be marital debt as well, and divorce may not necessarily solve that. Yeah, I mean, the marital debt is really, there's sort of, in my head, I guess, two ways of thinking about it. There's, well, there's debt of the couple. So if they're married, right, that debt belongs to the couple. Any debt accrued during the marriage is debt of the marriage. And so when you divorce, you separate that up in the same way that when you divorce, you separate anything that was earned during the marriage. So we think more often of the earnings that you have to split the house and, you know, what have you. But for our clients, the debt accrued has to be divided. So if they have a joint, you know, a joint purchase, if let's say they bought a house and the husband had no credit rating and she did have a good credit rating, so they agreed that they were going to put the house in her name because they were more likely to be able to get the loan they needed to buy the house. 
but they agreed between themselves that he was going to make the mortgage payments and then he stops making the mortgage payments. They now owe money on that house. And when it comes to try to divide that household, that debt looks like it belongs to both of them. So then as part of the divorce, we're going to need to try to prove that that shouldn't really be her debt, which goes against all the legal understanding of marriage, that all that stuff that accrues during the marriage belongs to the marriage. So we're going to have to prove that she was really coerced, in essence, into having being responsible for that debt that doesn't belong to her. And then, you know, similarly, even if they're not married, we've had situations where unbeknownst to our clients, their partner has taken their credit card and made purchases with it or take, you know, use their app, right? Everything is so easy to use and it's really identity theft, but it's complicated. The courts are not always as sympathetic as they might be because we have this feeling that, well, they're in a relationship and they used your, you know, Starbucks app before to buy coffee. Why is it wrong for them to use the Starbucks app these other five times when you hadn't given them permission? It, it kind of goes to that, that, complication when you know you've given consent one time but you didn't con give consent for the entire action we always are in the position of having to convince the court that these actions were not done with consent and it's hard it's not frankly always successful and so our clients are really vulnerable because they so much of this can be done behind their back and suddenly they you know they look at a statement and realize there's all this debt owed that they didn't accrue Let's talk about immigration status because that can play a role here as well. If you may feel connected or bound to your partner uh, because they're your access to work or they're your access to uh, a legal status. Yeah, so we have, you know, as I mentioned, we do family matrimonial and immigration law. And while um, not all of our clients are domestic violence victims or survivors, all of our immigration clients are because that's the nature of the practice. So we only do the kinds of immigration remedies that are available to victims of partner violence. So in other words, let's say you come from another country and you marry a US citizen and that citizen spouse can petition for you to have citizenship in this country, but that citizen spouse is abusive to you. The only way you're gonna be able to get status in this country is to stay with an abusive partner. And so under the Violence Against Women Act, you can petition on your own. If you disclose to an attorney that you are a victim of partner violence, there is an avenue for you to get status in this country on your own. So those are the kinds of cases we handle. They're kind of exceptions to most immigration practice where our clients are already in this country, normally with a, a way to citizenship, but to follow that path would require them to stay in abusive relationship. And so we offer them another path. So to your point, if you're being abused by your partner, and you don't know that you have this alternative, you know, path to citizenship, which most normal people wouldn't know. They're relying on their partner. Their partner's holding out that real power. Talk about power and control. You have the power to say, I will get you status, but only if you stay with me. That's incredibly powerful. And now, even in addition to that, you, because you don't have status, you don't have a lawful way to work. Your partner may not want you to work. You may try to work, but no one's going to hire you because you don't have status. You're really caught in this catch-22 where you can't get out of this situation. You can't possibly go out on your own and be successful. So that's why those immigration remedies under the Violence Against Women Act are so important. They've been extremely slowed down. We are hopeful that that may change. But you know, getting work authorization as part of that application is essential for people so they can get that financial independence, absolutely.
but even in a delayed process, there are rights uh, for people who are claiming those uh, protections. Yes, I mean, the, the kinds of petitions we do when you file for that kind of relief, and I'm talking about um, U visas, which are visas for people who've been victims of crime, battered spouse waivers, what I described before, when you apply for that, you are also applying for work authorization. The challenge is that very often, it used to be that when you applied for that, you got work authorization fairly quickly, maybe within a year, so still a long time, but within a year you got work authorization and that would allow you to maybe per physically separate yourself from an abusive person and start to support yourself. Right now, they're deciding the underlying petition for immigration at the same time as they're deciding the work authorization decision. So again, before you might get a letter saying, we know you're here, we're considering your application, it looks credible on its face, here's a work authorization while you wait. <laughs> now, you wait for the whole package at one time, and that can take years. So we have clients who we know have credible applications, we file them, and they may not hear for years whether their application is going to be approved, but almost more importantly, whether they have official work authorization. That's horrible. So that in that case, the power and control that you were talking about may actually still be in place. I actually took a VAWA case two years ago because I wanted to keep an oar in, if you will. And I just heard last week that she's been approved for this intermediate status, which is unbelievable. She, for a while though, did not have status and she did not have work authorization. And so she was in a position where, you know, what is she supposed to do? She's not supposed to work illegally. She's not eligible for public assistance. She shouldn't commit any crimes. You know, she is given no legitimate way to support herself in this country. Um, and so when we hear about people working under the table, you know, my answer to that often is what alternative would you have them take when we're not allowing them work authorization? So she was desperate. This is a person she wanted so much to work and she was trying to get jobs, but it was really hard for her. So when she finally got that work authorization, it was like the golden ticket for her to set up on her own. It still wasn't easy. She wasn't getting high paying jobs, but she knew that she had a way to live independently. All right, a quick break for those who are listening for MCLE credit. The code for this interview is 03-2719-032719. And now back to the interview. The challenges that you're describing, are people looking at reforming this? Are there system changes in the works or being considered? Absolutely. So we work in sort of two very different spaces. We work in the family matrimonial, matrimonial area, which is state law, and then the immigration law, which is federal. So, uh, you know, starting with the federal, as I'm sure you can imagine, implementation of federal law has been kind of different over the past four years, and we are looking forward to some changes. One of the complicating factors with immigration law is that there is an enormous amount of discretion giving to the decision-making agencies. So the cases we do in immigration are not heard in courts. They're heard by administrative officials in a processing center in Vermont. And those officials have a lot of discretion when they're making decisions about cases. So even just changing a tone at the top is going to have a really big impact on what outcomes we start to see. 
importantly, there also are some really key legislative changes and uh, commitments that we need. So I mentioned the Violence Against Women Act. All of the immigration work that we do is somewhere under that act. You know, it's an act, but it's it's scattered throughout federal law. And that's where these U visas, the battered spouse waiver options are existed, enacted, encoded into law is under the Violence Against Women Act. That expires periodically. And we're coming up to a renewal moment for the Violence Against Women Act. So because that's national, it's federal law, her justice wouldn't take a lead on that because we're a, a local not-for-profit, but we are very active in partnering with national organizations like ASISTA and others looking to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act. Joe Biden was one of the initial authors of that act, so we are more hopeful than we have been that we will be able to retain those benefits and perhaps improve upon them. But one thing that we did, for example, because again, we are focusing always on the economic benefits for our clients, this work authorization lag is just absurd to us. You know, as you said, what are they supposed to do? It's one thing to have to wait to have your status determined, but while you're waiting, you need to be able to put foot on, food on the table. So we've really focused on trying to get people work authorization as quickly as possible during the immigration process because it takes time to process applications and that's okay. We understand that. Maybe not five years long, but it'll take some time. So what we've done, for example, is we went back and interviewed about 46 of our clients who had benefited from our support and the support of volunteer lawyers and others to get their status and work authorization in this country and have done some research with them so that they're able to talk about the benefit of that work authorization and what they've been able to do with it, what kind of income they're looking at now several years out, what their life looks like. And we're going to be writing that up in a report and giving that to the national organization ASISTA that is lobbying for VAWA reauthorization, because we think really those case studies make the case about the essential nature of work authorization and really push back against, you know, narratives that others might try to say that these folks are sitting idly by while they wait for their status. That has never been our experience. Our clients are eager and desperate to work, and they're really able to make something of themselves if they're given that opportunity. So not only are you fighting in the trenches for these women, but you're advocating for more systemic change. Absolutely. And we do that on the state level as well. I mean, we're in New York state, of course, so I can't speak to the laws in all the states of the country. But in most places, there is a barrier in getting the child support awards that custodial parents need in a regular and timely fashion. And that is the area we're starting. We're going to be issuing our first policy report is going to be about child support, because when there has been a national conversation about child support, it's been most often about the child support burden that can land on low income men, oftentimes men of color, sometimes men who've been incarcerated and how that sort of historic burden is a barrier to them being able to get jobs and move forward. And that's all true. But the story that somehow hasn't been told is the story of the custodial parents who are raising the kids nonetheless and who are not getting the child support that they need. So, you know, at the end of the day, child support is supposed to support children. It's not really supposed to be a fight between the parents, but a way to come together to provide that support for children. And what we're seeing where we practice is that most of our clients have cases that last for ever they we did original research that showed that on average cases are adjourned and on average when they're adjourned they're adjourned because people haven't been able to supply the necessary paperwork they're not adjourned for 
you know, understandable reasons like somebody's unable to appear in court or there's a, a trial that needs to be scheduled. They're adjourned because somebody hasn't filed a document. And so these adjournments, during all these adjournments, our clients aren't getting the child support they need to survive. And as I said before, we only take cases where we believe there are assets there, there is an ability to pay, and those cases aren't moving forward. So there again, that's a system we would like to reform. We'd really like to look at how is child support handled? Why are we letting cases take two years? And during that two years, the parent raising the kid isn't getting any income. That doesn't seem, and meanwhile, the court is having to process that case. So it's costing the court time um, and resources as well. So that's another area I think that's ripe for reform. What's the alternative? Is it is it giving an interim order? We do think that the proceeding could move forward more quickly. And we think that the, there's a lot of distinctions among the proceedings. So one thing that we have noticed is that for child support cases, and there are some states that do this already. So we think New York could look for them to them for guidance. If you have a child support case where both people have full-time jobs, they're W-2 wage earners, it's really a pretty straightforward case. It's kind of math. You put in your W-2 and the judge has a calculation in New York. It's written into statute what the calculation is, depending on the incomes, the number of children. You can kind of push a button and come out with a number. One of our recommendations is going to be to consider taking those out of the courthouse. It doesn't seem to us that we need the full resources of the court system and the judge's time, the clerk's time to do that kind of a case. Whereas the cases that we typically handle where we've got hidden assets, unreported assets, or just a much more complicated income stream, that's a case that should stay in the courthouse. And we think that even with a relatively small kind of division that way, we would see a huge advance in people getting the money that they need because the courts that are typically under-resourced can focus their resources on the cases that are complicated and not be sort of bogged down with the cases that could be handled in an administrative hearing in one of our state agencies. So that's one example. You've mentioned the court proceedings and the added challenges and inconveniences that that brings with it. What have you seen during during quarantine or during the COVID crisis? Are these court cases going forward remotely through some type of uh, video conference? So in New York, at least, in New York City, so for those of people who aren't from New York City, we New York is a big state, and in the five boroughs of the city, we function kind of as an entity, very different from the rest of the state. And I say that because what's happening to our clients is very unique to the New York City practice. It is not the same as what's happening in the rest of the state. What's happening in New York City is that the family court, which is always one of our very busiest courts, family court and criminal court, you know, trial courts, are overwhelmed with numbers of cases and deeply under-resourced. When we then had to go to lockdown, the family courts really didn't have, uh, you know, a, compla- a, a fancy technology set up to, to go back to. So commercial courts, for example, have been doing things like e-filings and remote appearances for a long time. That has never been available in the family court. So when we first shut down, there really wasn't much happening, period, in the family courts at the beginning. So, you know, back in March, the only cases the family courts initially were able to hear were order of protection petitions because they understood that those were really essential, you know, life or death situations. They needed to hear those. And then they slowly started opening up for new cases. So I would say that right now we're in a situation where cases that were filed in the before times, pre-COVID, are moving forward slowly. There are occasional virtual court appearances. Usually they are, they are moving forward with things like conferencing. 
uh, not too many trials. There have been a couple, but very few. Cases um, now can be filed through an electronic system, which is relatively new, but they will not proceed. So you can kind of get that filing date on your case, but you're not gonna have any court appearances on that case for now. And we also think that there is a pent up need for cases where people are not filing because they know the courts are only partially operational, that once the courts open up more will be coming. So we're sort of in this funny hiatus right now where the cases we have are moving, if moving slowly, there are a lot of people coming to us for help and we're actually advising them not to file right now because they're not actually gonna get a remedy right away. The other challenge with remote proceedings, well, on the one hand, for our clients, they could be really helpful. You don't have to go across town. You don't have to get a Metro card. You don't have to get childcare for your kids. You could just appear from home. The problem is a lot of our clients don't have a safe place from home. So going back to the partner violence problem, you know, think about getting an order of protection against the partner from whom, you know, with whom you live. You're not going to want to appear in court for that case from that home. Oh, that is fascinating. So I can't, I can't even imagine trying to do an appearance where, you know, my abuser is sitting right here uh, physically in yeah. a private apartment. No, you, you can't. And you may be in an apartment with, you know, children and you might not want your children to hear what you're about to tell the judge or you may share an apartment with other people. So it's really not feasible. They may also not have good Wi-Fi or maybe your husband pays for the Wi-Fi. I mean, there's so many places where that power and control makes even trying to get to court really difficult. And in some ways, doing it remotely is harder. You know, if you leave the house, if you have the freedom to leave the house, you can sneak out and go to a physical court and get an order of protection. It's much harder to do now. So, you know, one thing that we've done at Her Justice is we've made a couple of spaces available in our physical office from which clients can appear remotely. So they're all hooked up with the necessary equipment. And it does mean a client needs to, you know, leave their home and, and take public transportation. So it's not ideal in a pandemic situation, but it does give them that opportunity. So, so that's been difficult. And even if someone isn't a victim of partner violence, again, thinking about the digital divide, it really highlights that digital divide and whether clients are available to appear or not. Amy, before we let you go, maybe you can share a story or two about success where you've stepped in to provide this type of economic empowerment for women. Yeah, absolutely. So we have lots of successes. Uh, you know, the, the system's hard and the circumstances for our clients are hard, but the volunteer attorneys are amazing and often it's success delayed, but the success does arrive. And a lot of the successes for our clients, you know, the economic successes are really key. And very often that's linked for them to the well-being of their children, because so many of our clients are moms. We had a client who, when the first New York City lockdown happened, you know, when New York was really the epicenter of COVID, because abusers are will use anything for power and control, whether it's the legal system, whether it's someone's immigration status, we had a client whose husband decided, the husband lived out of New York City in upstate New York and decided that the children, the child should just not come back to New York City because it was COVID central and it wasn't safe. And so on one visitation, the husband refused to relinquish the child. And this was at the very beginning of COVID. As I said, when the courts were functionally closed, they were only just starting to open for emergency proceedings. And usually a visitation modification petition, which is what this would be, is not considered an emergency. Meanwhile, our client went upstate. She quarantined for two weeks. She was doing everything she could to get access to her child and was just not getting through. 
And with the attorney, they were able to get to the judge and make the argument that, that no, this is an emergency because basically this husband has kidnapped the child, is not bringing the child to see the mother, and that this sort of using COVID as the excuse is an extreme situation. First of all, he was not following any public health guidelines, but also just because our client lived in New York City does not mean that it was inherently dangerous for the child to be there. So with the you know really dedicated work of a pro bono team, they were able to get into the court, which in and of itself was kind of extraordinary, and make the argument this was an emergency petition and we needed to modify the visitation and the husband had to relinquish the child. So the child is now back with the mom and they can have regular visitation. So the teams that we have working on these cases really go above and beyond. And during COVID, it's it's been terrific to work with them because people have had to have new creative strategies to kind of work around these new barriers that are in place. But we do see successes for people and really, you know, getting access to their kids and being able to financially support their kids is the best thank you and the most common thank you we get from our clients thanks to these volunteer attorneys. Let me add another thank you to that, not only for what you and your organization are doing, but for taking the time out of your important schedule today to join us. Thank you so much. And thank you for thinking to talk to us. We love to talk about our work. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.